Welcome to the Beyond Mining podcast series. This podcast series was recorded from a number of talks, panel discussions and workshops held between the 22nd and 29th of November 2020 at the Beyond Mining Counter Conference. This counter conference was organised by Blockade iMark. Blockade iMark is made up of an alliance of organisations that has been protesting the International Mining and Resources Conference held annually in so-called Melbourne, Australia on unceded Wurundjeri and Boomerang country. You can find out more information about Blockade iMark and the Beyond Mining podcast series at blockadeimark.com. Now, sit back, relax, and enjoy your podcast. Hi everyone and welcome. My name is Apsara Sabratnam and I'll be the facilitator for this thought-provoking panel discussion. I'm a member of the iMark Alliance who last year organized Blockade iMark. A lot of you probably remember Blockade iMark um, for the police brutality that many of the protesters who were actually peaceful protesters experienced. And we decided then that we were going to make this an annual event. This has actually been something that has been happening for quite a few years, but um, we decided that we were going to keep growing this movement, make it more global, and actually bring global perspectives to the, uh, to Australians and you know people around the world, so that we could build up some uh, solidarity across the globe. And this is why this year uh, IMARC went online and we have also decided to do our counter conference and go online as well. And whilst it obviously has been a little bit challenging, it also has um, really uh, enabled us to connect with um, frontline defenders and first, first Nations people from across the globe. So before I commence, what I would like to do is make an acknowledgement. I live in Melbourne CBD on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations. So I would like to pay my respects to elders past and present. I would also like to acknowledge these lands have never been ceded and this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Furthermore, I would also like to extend a warm welcome to all First Nations peoples attending today's session and to both Jesse and um, uh, Lungol as well. Um, today's topic is about decolonizing environmentalism. And therefore, I think it's really important for us to acknowledge the over 60,000 years of uninterrupted spiritual connection First Nations peoples have had with these lands and their incredible role as custodians in preserving and protecting the natural environment. And we also have to recognize that we are really the colonial settler class and we have played a huge role in causing much of the environmental catastrophe that we are faced with today. And therefore must actively walk alongside our First Nations brothers and sisters towards achieving sovereignty and self-determination. So we're gonna go through a few things. And first of all, I might do is go through some housekeeping. Then I will give you a bit of a recap about um, why we are organizing this panel discussion as part of this uh, mining and extractivism um, panel. And then I'm going to introduce you to the three incredible panelists that we have. 
And I've got quite a few questions that I would like to pose to the um, to the panelists, and, and so that you can hear from them why decolonizing environmentalism is a very important um, is very important. Um, sorry, decolonizing environmentalism is very important. But I also uh, encourage all of you to uh, you know ask questions. We are actually going to have a Q&A, so the, it's, very, it's a great way which you can actually um, pose your questions to specific panelists or to all three panelists, and then we can actually ask those questions. What we're gonna do now is we are gonna put everyone on mute, and um, I ask you to please remain on mute, um, especially when people are speaking, because then we don't have the echo that you sometimes have, and you, do, and you will have about 30 minutes to be able to ask those questions. So why decolonizing environmentalism? Um, I think, first of all, we need to understand um, this is all centered around colonialism and colonial capitalism. And most of, of the systems of power structures that we operate under today were built by, built by colonialists for colonialists. They were expressly designed to help people who saw Australia only as a land of new resources. These colonialists came here looking for a better life and success and in many cases to enrich Britain. And they had absolutely no regard for the cost of that success to the land, to the future well-being of the country or the people who already lived here. Therefore, really, we need to recognize that our systems of governance and many of our social values are inextricably linked to the neoliberal settler goals. Therefore, what decolonizing is a process that we all need to go through of critically examining our power structures, our governance, our social values, and our ways of thinking, identifying assumptions that are fundamentally colonialist and weeding them out. And of, we need to actually create space to be listening to and centering the voices of First Nations peoples. Now, obviously, decolonizing is a key process for all aspects of society, but I think it's particularly relevant in environmentalism, where for decades we've tried to replace a neo-capitalist model of exploiting our, uh, or destroying our nature with an equally neo-capitalist model of preserving and commodifying the value of pristine nature. So by centering and amplifying the voices of those who have been custodians of this land for ten, tens of thousands of years and who have lived gently on, tended and improved it, we as a movement can be far better than we are if we actually listen to these very people. We also need to discuss how the burden of climate change can be shared so that it does not disproportionately impact the lives of non-white, poor and indigenous people who are overwhelmingly not the people who are responsible for causing climate change and improve our woefully one-dimensional and inaccessible narrative of numbers quotas, targets, politics, and full objectivity. So today I'm absolutely grateful to have our panelists. Um, and I'm gonna actually introduce each one of our panelists so that you get to um, learn a little bit about them before they actually uh, uh, impart a, uh, their knowledge as well. So our first panelist is Jessie Ferrari. Um, Jessie um, is a proud trans, and queer Yoto Yoda person living on sovereign and stolen warrantry land. They are an ecologist and, uh, and activist who does research around indigenous, uh, particularly Kuri scientific knowledge 
and how it can be used to care for country and help to decolonize science. Thank you very much, Desi. And our next panelist is Lungol. Lungol Wekina is a writer, performer, podcaster, and activist living on stolen Betgal land. His portfolio includes poetry, prose, podcasts, short stories, and essays. When um, Lungol's work centers his Indigenous, Black, and queer identities and is primarily about decolonization, social justice, and environmental protection. You can typically find um, Lungol at Redacted. He's also an Aries, so I, I thought that was really quite cool. Um, and our last panelist is Ruchira Talduka, who is a doctoral candidate in the School of Social and Political Sciences at the University of um, Technology in Sydney. Her PhD thesis compares cold conflicts and protest movements in India and Australia. Ruchira has worked with the uh, environmental movement in India with Greenpeace and in Australia with Greenpeace and the um, Australian Conservation Foundation. And she is a regular contributor on environmental politics at New Matilda and NewsClick in India. So without much ado, I would like to say welcome to all three of you. So what I will do is I'm going to pose to three, uh, all three of you the first question. And if you don't mind, I'll allocate four minutes for each one of you to speak. And um, so I'll start off with, maybe we'll start off with Jesse, um, if you are able to give your perspective. And the question that I asked to you, uh, Jesse, uh, is why do you believe the, environment the environmental movement is so white dominated? And what do you think are some of the reasons why First Nations people and people of color are not represented in these movements? Yeah, thank you. That's such an excellent question. It's something that I'm currently working to fight against with my degree and with my activism. And like you said before, when you touched upon it, the system of envi the environmental movement, the, the structures that it's built upon is still very much built around white supremacy um, and capitalism. Um, and it works to silence Indigenous voices, but also to disrupt the relationships that we have with land and country. Um, and it argues, I often find that it argues, you know, that all people, um, all humans are responsible for climate change, which is just not true. It's really, when you look down to it, it's, it's really just the colonial settler system and settlers who have done this, Indigenous people, we've um, governed and we've loved the land and we've cared for it and sung its health. Um, for millennia. Um, so I find, yeah, it's really important that we look at the history and legacy um, of the um, environmental movement and how it's still very much built around and operates within this white supremacist model, which, yeah, works to silence the voices of BIPOC people um, and erase our lived experiences and our connection to the environment. Uh, thank you very much, Jesse. And I'll pose that question next to uh, Ruchira, if you don't mind answering that question as well, Ruchira. Thank you. I'd like to acknowledge that I'm on the land of the Wurundjeri people and that sovereignty was never ceded. Thanks for the question, Apsara, and for the for this, you know, for a chance to be on this fantastic panel. So I come from India and we were having a conversation just a few days back, Apsara, and I said that 
the way we understand environmentalism in India is very different. It, it really is about kind of people's movements, indigenous, peasant, you know, kind of losing their livelihoods and their lands to big industrial projects. And that is the core essence of what groups work on, uh, strengthening their rights. And that is what I understand envi as environmentalism as in India. There are scholars who talk about environmentalism, the North versus South. And I use that a lot in my work in the thesis and how I try to understand the different kind of philosophies and practices. But coming to Australia and having worked with Greenpeace and then the Australian Conservation Foundation, and also seeing the Stop Adani movement and kind of engaging with them for a long time, there are certain things that um, I would say that apart from the indigenous equation, apart from the fact that the environmental movement is built on understandings and practices that are directly detrimental to kind of indigenous connection to land, uh, for a migrant, there are various barriers. Um, so migrant, um, I mean, diasporic kind of people, people of color don't see those, you know, environmental NGOs as viable options. That's a very standard cultural perception. But more than that, I think the way institutions are run and governed, everything, it, it, is, a, it is a really white culture. Uh, and the American environment movement and the Australian environment movement have similar kind of, have had similar orientations and values. And it finally is about a group of people hanging around together. And you want to be with people your kind. And the kinds of stories and the kinds of values and the kinds of campaigns don't necessarily reflect core issues that migrants might work on. Um, so I'll touch on this a bit later, but I, for me, I think, I kept asking myself, I don't see others like myself in the seven or eight years that I was working with you know, big professional NGOs. And I think I come to those reasons about why I don't see others like myself. Great, thank you so much. And um, Lungo, do you mind if I ask you the same question as well? Uh, no, absolutely. Um, I think it's a really interesting question because I think it speaks more to the structural issue of environmentalism as a movement, as opposed to just white people tending to be occupying more spaces, because the reality is, at least in my experience, a lot of climate justice activists have a really hard time systemically reckoning with the fact that climate justice is intrinsically tied to indigenous justice. Um, and I think that we'll always have this problem if climate activists just refuse to understand that environmental protection is so intrinsically linked to the indigenous liberation. Like you can't unlink those two things. Those two things have to be addressed simultaneously. Otherwise you can't address either. And I think one of the biggest issues is something that you said earlier about trying to address a problem that was created by a neoliberal capitalist system with another alternative that's inherently neoliberal and capitalist in nature. You know, it's really important that we don't look at climate change as an issue that exists in a vacuum that everyone needs to rally together and fight against. It's an issue that has been known about for decades in the science community. It's an issue that can be addressed right here and right now, but there are 
capitalist structures and institutions that exist specifically to make sure that it doesn't happen. So I think the biggest reason why you don't see Indigenous faces and First Nations faces in the environmental activist movement is because our lived experiences just aren't valued. You know, our connection to country or to the environment we, you know, have nurtured for so long just isn't respected and it isn't given the acknowledgement it deserves. Um, so yeah, that's my answer to that question. I think um, it's actually a, a very pertinent point that you make. Uh, I just was going to maybe, uh, with what you've just said, um, I was just going to maybe uh, go back to you, Jesse. Would you also want to maybe talk a little bit about, because I think uh, Lungol makes an extremely good point about the fact that uh, climate justice has to be linked with uh, social justice and, um, and also indigenous uh, uh, justice and liberation. Would you like to add a little bit to that as well from your perspective? Yeah, absolutely. Um, like Lungol said, they're intrinsic. Um, to make the real change and to heal country, to heal the land, we need to listen to Indigenous people and our voices. Um, our culture has always been connected to country, connected to land, and we know better and we, we've, we know how to take care of our country. We've done so for thousands and thousands of years, like since time immemorial. Um, I think I won't say too much. And I think Lungal did like a really amazing job at like explaining all of that. But um, I've definitely experienced also just um, in white dominated environmentalist um, organizations and societies, just how much my voice and my experiences as an Indigenous person was devalued invalidated and even mocked. Um, I had people say that, you know, Indigenous culture, um, Indigenous ways of existing and being um, have no place and not relevant, which is just not true. Um, in, in order to there to be change and to be healing, um, we need to, like Lungal said, we need Black Indigenous liberation and we need Indigenous and Black sovereignty respected, upheld, listened to, and we need to be leading the fight against climate change since we're the most adversely affected. We're on the front lines. 80% um, of the world's biodiversity is protected by Indigenous people. Um, so we really need the world, we need this white colonial capitalist society to listen to us and to heed what we've been saying for like hundreds, hundreds and you know years and centuries. Um, until that happens, we're just, it's just gonna continue. The devastation and the degradation and the oppression is just going to continue. Definitely, and I think it comes down to like at the end of the day, white supremacy, and um, the the fact that uh, it, we still have an issue with uh, white people not recognizing, as I think both of all three of you have highlighted, is the intelligences that um, indigenous people possess, and. Um, that come from uh, you know taking care of the of the surrounds for centuries and really living as one with nature and I think this is something that we uh, kind of leads into this next question that I'm going to pose to both um, yourself, uh, Jesse and Lungol. So I might go back to Lungol first, and then I'll come back to you, Jesse. Okay. And the second question is: um, First Nations people have been environment environmentalists forever. 
This is something many of us do not recognize and do not appreciate. Are you able to provide the audience with an understanding of a First Nations perspective of environmentalism? So Lungo, do you mind if I ask you to answer that question first? Yeah, um, I, I think it's a pretty complicated um, question because I personally wouldn't call my ancestors environmentalists specifically. Um, just because environmentalism is, you know, a movement that's defined by its, you know, opposition to capitalism. And, you know, before contact, before colonization, my people weren't capitalists. So there really wasn't a need for us to advocate for something we already valued so much, you know, and I think it's like the spirit is fair, the spirit of, you know, this kind of statement is very much true. We've always lived in tandem with nature, with our natural environment. And that's because we just didn't operate on a capitalist system that saw the environment as something to be exploited. You know, that just wasn't something my people did. And that's something that is very much characterizing the world we live in today because, you know, I'm like pers personally here living on Bidjigal country, I'm a settler because I'm Papua New Guinean. So even though I am black and indigenous, I do, you know, hold the experience of a settler on a land that isn't mine. So I'm only speaking about my experience for back home, but back home we, all our practices can be, you know, described as being sustainable because we just didn't see the need to constantly take and take and take from the world around us. You know, when um, I come from islander communities on both my parents' sides, and when it came to fishing, for example, we didn't fish everywhere in the ocean around our islands all times of the year because we just didn't need to do that. We didn't need to consume that much, you know, of our natural resources. So we'd take, you know, several months at a time fishing from one spot in particular before moving to another so that the populations we take in food from were given time to regenerate as we moved on to a new location. So these kind of realities are really important to take into consideration because we didn't need to be environmentalists pre-contact because we already loved and treasured and valued the natural resources we were blessed with. We saw it as a blessing. We were extremely grateful for it and we treated it respectfully. Whereas now we're forced to live in a system that treats the environment as an externality, you know, there it's just a limitless source of resources we can take and take and take from. And there isn't a reciprocal relationship with it, like, you know, our peoples used to have beforehand. Thank you so much, uh, Lungol. I think there's a lot to digest there. Um, and Jesse, would you like to add to uh, what Lungol has said too and provide your perspective as well? Absolutely. Um, and of course, like I'll be speaking from the Kuru perspective. Um, so I just kind of want to dispel the myth that, you know, all Indigenous people are homogenous. We had, that's not, that's not true. We have different relationships of country. 
um, different systems, different uh, senses of ownership, which are just not compatible and the same as the Western colonial style um, attitude towards land. Um, so I was always growing up, I was always told that country, the land is a part of you. You're a part of it. When it's sick, you become sick. It's important that you respect it um, because country is your responsibility. It is your legacy. It is what you inherit. And so you have a duty to care for it just as it provides and cares for you. Um, it is not something to be commodified or profit profited off as Western society does to land environment. And it's not a detached inert thing. It's not like this justice land, like there is so much, um, there's so much spherical connection that, you know, we have to, towards the land. Um, growing up, I was always taught that everything on country is sacred and has a spirit. So whether it be a rock or a mountain, an animal like a bird or a possum, everything has value and no one is above it. Um, and so I, I definitely really concur um, and agree with what Lungal said about environmentalism. It's a weird kind of, I guess we could kind of say surreal abstract way to, um, to think about it from like, because it's really just a colonial term and it's one that has emerged through the, their realization that capitalism is a destructive force for the environment. And even the word environment and land and nature is detached when you think about it, because like, yes, we live in cities, but growing up um, in the Western colonial system, I was always taught that that was separate from us, where that was in direct contradiction to growing the indigenous teachings and my indigenous culture where it said that that's not true there's no such thing as nature like everything although like everything is nature there's no detachment um like city like even if it's a city it's a concrete jungle it's still nature um so i'm going for going a bit of a tangent which i tend to go <laughs> on um but yeah, going back to my understandings of yeah, like nature, we know it's not like it's it it's exhaustive. It's like it's doesn't like it does replenish when you take care of it and when you care for it, but it's not something you just take, 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 take without giving back. Um, and often like um in particularly in Korea, I can't speak much for other mob, um, but in many Korean languages, the land for like the word for country and land is often used for a body part. So we see it as being a part of us. Um, so it gives you a bit of a, an idea sociolinguistically, but like where, where we view things and just how much contradiction it is to the Western colonial um, kind of thought process and view of the environment. Yeah, and I think like oh, you do, uh, you, how you explain, I think also is really important because at the end of the day, the, in the West, we see everything as a resource that can be uh, tapped into and exploited. And whereas, you know, as you were saying, you know, in, um, in Kuri culture, um, even a rock is, uh, has a spirit and 
water has, has a spirit, you know? So everything um, you, you see, it, and you said it's everything as being equal. And I think this has been one of the biggest problems that we've had with colonization is the, the exploitative nature of, uh, of colonial capitalism, which is exploiting uh, people, exploiting uh, land, exploiting um, the environment. And it's uh, just for the short-term gain. Whereas in, um, indigenous cultures it's really understanding about the fact that we're only here for like we're here just for a very short period of time and that we are literally just um, passing on and being and being custodians to um you know and that's all our role is and i think you know these differences in how we how indigenous people view um their place in um place on a place is also, I think, absolutely paramount in the way in which I think we have so much to learn from and could gain greatly if we could actually understand that our place as well. So I just have one, uh, another question now for Ruchira. Um, uh, Ruchira, you and I are migrants, okay? I, I was born in Sri Lanka and I grew up in Africa. I grew up in Zambia and Zimbabwe and before my family migrated to Australia, and I haven't spoken to you, uh, you're Indian and um, you migrated to Australia a couple of years ago, probably about eight years ago, if I remember right. Okay. Yes, yeah, so I want to ask you, um, you know, if you can give us a bit of a perspective, you know, many people of colour migrate to Australia, and we all, we hail from colonies, okay? Uh, well, um, uh, Sri Lanka was a colony of the, uh, well, uh, there was Portuguese, there was Dutch, and then there was a British colony, and then both Zambia and Zimbabwe were British colonies. Um, so why is decolonizing our minds as people who have been colonized ourselves um, is, is absolutely uh, essential for us? Um, like to get a better understanding of, um, you know, the environmental catastrophe of colonial capitalism and, um, why does it actually? Why is it important for us to be able to um, to to be able to do that, and um, so that we are better, like better placed to stand in solidarity with our First Nations brothers and sisters? Thanks, Absara, for the question. Um, that's absolutely right. Look, I think you know, as migrants from um, from so-called post-colonial societies. We kind of straddle a very complicated, we have a complicated history. We, we were under colonial rule and then we had independence, so to speak. But that really depends on which layer of society you come from. Uh, and that is something we often forget. Like coming from India and I have this, we have this panel tomorrow. I hope some of you guys can come to where we talk about mining versus indigenous rights in India in the case of internal colonization. So whereas for someone like me and my family, over the last two generations, India, India won independence in 1947. Um, over the uh, last you know, two generations, we have, I can say that my family and the layer of society I come from, we have had the experience of freedom from colonial rule, but that is not the case for a lot of uh, specifically indigenous people who still live in for, on forested lands where still mining goes on and the state itself violates its own laws. So it's a, I think for me coming to Australia kind of also brought in a practice of a more active practice of being able to understand the need for decolonizing my mind. 
uh, I mean, just simply put again, this is a complication of the global South, which we don't get over here, but we have many different socioeconomic layers in a country like India and indigenous people, unfortunately, don't have the same socioeconomic space that someone like me does. When I come to Australia and in a way we are peers, I start learning in a different way than I do in India. I mean, it's a shameful thing to say, but that is the truth. So that kind of then sets me back on my own journey of specific practices of decolonization that pertain back to where I come from, because I still continue working in India, with India, across India and Australia. So I think that's a very valuable experience. People who come from so-called post-colonial societies have a complicated history because we still haven't fully been, you know, kind of escaped the grip of colonialism. It exists within us within the elites, the elites of any society who have had a colonial past still hold on to colonization, drive it internally. So I think for me, one of the biggest learning lessons through a practice of you know, being in Australia the last 12 years has been understanding that. And I think also like we have to recognize as well, Wachira, like I mean, our education systems in uh, our home countries are very still, um, you know, their throwback of the colonial system, our, our governments also, I mean, the, the installation of governments and the, the handover of power from, um, uh, uh, from uh, in, in both our cases, the Britain, you know, to um, uh, meant that there was a transition from an old system that involved, you know, British law and um, British ways of, of doing, uh, running uh, government and things like that. And so therefore, at the end of the day, we have never really broken away from that, um, those systems that were set in the first place to oppress us, isn't it? So do you want to maybe talk a little bit about that as well, if you can? Yes, look, I think specifically what I can think of is laws. We still have colonial eras laws in India, which have just been reframed. So at the at this point of time, um, India, India has a high number of environmental conflicts. It has the most number of environmental conflicts in the world. Um, that's according to the Earth Justice Atlas. And most of them are about indigenous and peasant people being dispossessed of their land for industrial projects. And the kinds of laws that are used, even though progressive laws have been passed, governments still kind of drive the practice that the colonial era government did of having this eminent domain of driving people off the land. That's perhaps one of the most recurrent examples of how colonization continues. The other aspect is the fact that India, like Australia, was founded on colonial capitalism. And it's a system that we have, of course, kept and we have driven. Um, India had a socialist government centrally for, you know, kind of a good 40, 50 years, but then suddenly the floodgates are opened and, you know, boom, massive development. And, you know, that, that was the neoliberal kind of phase of Indian growth. And we kind of, I mean, we have driven kind of massive industrialization, which is justified, of course, for in economic development at the cost of different sections of society and that have all been enabled by colonial practices which the British had practiced in India, which have been perpetuated by Indians in power afterwards. So that is the reality of colonization is that colonization continues in post-colonial societies because the economic, political economic structures have been given. 
And I think also just adding to what you were saying there, um, it's also very important for us to remember that um, there's a whole process of brainwashing as well, where uh, colonialists keep telling us that you know they did so much good for us, like they built schools, they built railway lines, they built this and they built that and what have you. But and those, that infrastructure we need to understand was often built so that they could actually serve the colonialists. Um, I uh, read some statistics just about India to get, uh, and which I found incredibly, um, you know, it just kind of shows you, uh, I, I think earlier on we were talking about how um, European wealth has been built. Um, prior to the British East India Company um, arriving in India, um, I think India made up, um, India's economy made up like 30% of the world's um, uh, 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 economy. And, um, you know, it literally by the time um, British gave up India to um, in, at independence, it had gone down to 4% of the global economy. And, you know, during the 200 year reign of the uh, British East India Company, something, there was some calculations of about $200 billion was taken out of, in today's value was taken out of India. And that was, um, you know, through the ways in which um, the taxing systems that the, you know, the British uh, East India Company used, the, the way in which they bought things really cheaply from the Indians and then sold to other markets quite uh, at an at a elevated price and what have you. So really the corrosive nature of colonialism is, um, you know, often overlooked as well. And we are, we, uh, you know, fall in line and actually fall for the, the kind of narrative that is being sold to us over the centuries of the fact that colonialism has actually improved our lives when in fact, um, in, in India is a great case in, uh, uh, case in point of just how, uh, how it, um, from an economic perspective, um, was so corrosive. But it's not only that, you know, you look at um, the richness of um, India's, um, you know, understanding of gender and, um, you know, and sexuality. And when we look at uh, how um, that was viewed prior to colonization, where um, you didn't have the kind of binary definitions of gender and um, uh, sexuality. And then we can see, as you said, through legislation, what that has um, resulted in is, you know, some of the most backward thinking about um, things like that. So, you know, it's so destructive on so many levels, not just on the, on the environment, it's on the society, on people's ways of thinking and being as well, isn't it? It is. I think the dilemma of a post-colonial society, so-called post-colonial society, um, you know, like India is that now we have the Adanis and the Ambanis of the world, the kind of, corporate monopoly oligarchs who are probably kind of establishing kind of you know enormous wealth at the expense of taxpayers and as well as you know kind of indigenous and peasant people and mm. that is colonization too so we have these two stories and us indians we try to reconcile both and it's just a very complicated terrain um, but the, of course, it doesn't take away from that, you know, kind of the history of just a well-trained and also how the entire landscape culturally and every which way was changed. Yeah. Thank you very much, Ruchira. Now I'm going to go to Jesse and I'll ask Jesse and Lungal this question. Um, so uh, 
so Mark, uh, Jesse, if you could respond first. Uh, what are some of the issues with our Western style of environmentalism and environmental protection? Um, there's been numerous flashpoints, um, both here as well as um, around the uh, world, um, between uh, people in the movement and First Nations people. And I think one of the best examples of that that, are, that come to mind is how, um, you know, in the West, we want to create national parks. And we think creating national parks is a great way of protecting the environment. Um, when actually what that also means, it locks out First Nations peoples from um, the places where they um, have lived in, in one with um, the forests and the land and the water in those areas there. Are you able to share some examples of such flashpoints and discuss why centering a First Nations understanding of ecology is important if the movement is to move forward as a unified voice for all? Um, so I'm doing, with my degree, I do a lot of work around national parks and conservation and bringing the Indigenous perspective of conservation into into like um, my degree into curriculum and into the like the ecology sector um and like you identified before there is this tension with national parks that it does encroach on territory and also just the the kind of the attitude that it brings of it's fine if we have a few little pockets of of un um undisturbed nature uh, whilst we continue our consumerist kind of capitalist um, commodifying nature and we continue the colonial machine. Um, I think it, it's quite tokenizing, in fact. I find it quite like quite offensive. And, and a lot of these national parks don't often don't have partnerships with traditional owners in the area. And if they do, there is quite um, minimal engagement or often it's set on the white ranges terms. It's set on, um, it's, there's still that kind of hierarchy in place where indigenous people are expected to come and do this for all this labor for minimal reward, um, often don't get to have their knowledge valued. Uh, if anything, it's to fill their devote, um, diversity quota, um, and you just have this tokenizing element to it. Um, and so it, it just makes it, it makes, it causes exacerbation and tension and mental unwellness. Um, so I think it's really important when centering First Nation understanding of ecologies that you let us lead, that we have a voice, that we have agency, um, that it's important that instead of standing in front of us, um, colonizers and settlers stand next to us and they listen to what we have to say because um, often yeah with, with environmental movements in general it's often you have this white saviorism sometimes where you have like um white, white um, environmentalists just swoop in and be like yeah, be sympathetic to a degree but often it's like a it's really it comes at the cost of our agency and our voice and it's not doesn't come across as genuine like they're actually listening to what we're saying it, it look it's more kind it comes across as just them trying to get I guess you can say performative work points um so that's a difficult thing to that, that um you know First Nations people Bible people have to navigate um in the current western style environmentalism 
and um, yeah, with national parks, it's hit and miss. Um, often, yeah, like I said before, the partnerships aren't really there. There's, some of them are coming up now, they're emerging and they do look promising, but there's still that barrier in place that we face with communication and understanding and reciprocity. Um, yeah, and until we break those down, uh, until um, we have this consciousness and this ability to like sit and learn, it's just gonna be a vicious cycle. Thank you very much. Uh, and I, I've got a few things here that I wanted to add, but I'll wait, I'll wait till uh, Lungal um, adds to that as well. And because I think you've highlighted some really important points there, Jesse. Um, Lungal, would you be able to share with us as well, please? Yeah, um, I think it's really interesting because Western forms of environmentalism don't seem to have an interest in dismantling capitalism and settler colonial violence, which is inherent to environmental justice. You just can't have one without the other. And national parks are a really good example of how that manifests in practice. You know, a lot of states think that if they can cordon off, you know, X hectares of land and treat it with the minimum amount of respect it deserves, that it offsets all the environmental damage it's doing. And that just doesn't work. You can't expect that to happen. And it's just as ineffective as, you know, what a lot of corporations are doing, like airlines, when it comes to carbon offsetting, you know, they charge you an extra $2 when you buy a plane ticket and they say, oh, we'll plant a tree. And, you know, you can feel a little bit less guilty about catching a plane. Well, the emissions are still being released into the atmosphere. So the issue isn't being addressed at all. So I think it really needs a radical restructuring of how we understand our relationship to the environment because we can't just continue to do atrocious violent things to the world we live in and treat it as something to exploit and disrespect while you know giving very few concessions here and there just to tell corporations they can't cut trees down here or you telling hunters you can't hunt over here because the reality is that line of thinking just takes a very clinical approach to nature which isn't accurate nor helpful because you can't just take one part of the natural environment and say oh I'm going to treat this the way it deserves to be treated, I'm going to respect it, I'll make sure that, you know, we minimize pollution around it when in all the land around it, nature's being harmed. Because the reality is nature doesn't stop where urban centers start, you know, like Jesse said, nature's everywhere. And you can try to keep one pocket of land pristine but if there's a water system going through it and upstream, you're letting corporations pollute it, you're effectively polluting the natural park that you're seeking to protect. So that's why it's really important that, you know, you not only decolonize environmental justice, but 
remove capitalist notions away from it as well, because capitalism cannot thrive in tandem with environmental justice and environmental recovery. That just won't happen. Capitalism relies on environmental degradation for its success. So yeah, I hope that answers the question. No, I, I, I completely agree with you. I mean, um, we are sold on this growth model um, and it's everywhere and it's so insidious, which really requires the subjugation and as you said, degradation of um, things. So we, like, we cannot be supporting growth and at the same time fighting for um, environmental and, and justice and, um, at all because we're not going, it's like literally an oxymoron, isn't it? Thank you so much to both of you, uh, both you and Jesse. I think um, both your perspectives are absolutely paramount. And I think also with Jesse's the, this whole, um, you know, using quotas as a way to say, yeah, you know, we've got the number of people who are working um, who might be First Nations. And as you said, without a voice, that's uh, nothing at the end of the day. And, you know, and I think that tokenistic approach we need to get away from, um, definitely. So I, this question is for Ruchira. Um, Ruchira, in thinking about our citizenship in this world, we also need to have an understanding of local Indigenous issues, local Indigenous past and local Indigenous presence. However, to do this, we need to recognise that the context and understanding of indigeneity varies greatly from one place to another. And the issues Indigenous people face varies greatly. Are you able to talk a little bit about this, especially as someone who has spent quite a bit of time addressing the dispossession of Indigenous people in India due to mining activity? Yes, um, well, you know, I, I have, I know I'm lucky to call a lot of friends back in India, my colleagues who have much more experience working on the ground on you know, care of Indigenous issues in mining areas. But whatever experience I have and whatever I understand, I mean, there is, what really fascinates me are the similarities and yet the massive differences. And of course, you know, as what, uh, you know, kind of as Jesse said, it is true that there are enormous varieties and distinctions and cultural differences within indigenous world in Australia and it's the same everywhere and in India too. But the structural similarities the kind of the histories of dispossession and also resurgence of assertions of sovereignty. I think those political impulses are very similar around the world. So I, I love, I actually thrive in finding commonality and differences because that is perhaps a key to finding solidarity across something as disparate as the global north and south. Then there are enormous similarities between societies and settler colonial countries where I now live and post-communion societies like India and what's happening with indigenous people, apart from the fact that there's a socioeconomic disparity between the North and South. So, uh, you know, I can only kind of answer this more effectively through personal experience of, um, I have of course taken a more consistent approach to understanding local indigenous culture from where I come from. I come from the Eastern part of Bengal, which was the first province to be colonized by the British. But the Western part of that is forested and mineral rich. And that is also homelands of indigenous people and the local, um, the local indigenous uh, communities from there and learn up the history. But I'm kind of going on a tangent over there. Um, 
the pathway to you know kind of being more aware in practice in terms of how we build solidarities with First Nations people. Again, I kind of said this before, has come to me since I've been in Australia because there is a more active practice in that way. In India, the, the forested regions are spaces of conflict and people like us work with indigenous people to try and resolve those conflicts. Uh, spaces and conversations around solidarity and cultural understanding don't happen in the structured way that I find them happening over here. So for me, there's been a lot of structural learning in terms of how to relook at India and the part of India I come from um, and re-engage with the indigenous past of that place. Um, yes, and of course that is very grounded in you know, what I learned here, um, yeah. I just wanted to, um, I think, you know, just this, because the politics of, you know, kind of centering indigenous history and centering indigenous culture within environmentalism is something that, you know, kind of, that's always kind of really interested me. That's what I work on. Um, what I also see happening across Australia and India, uh, that is across the global North and South, let's say, is how the idea of and the need for climate justice is democratizing things in many ways. So we did, Longol did point to, you know, kind of how climate justice activists just really find it difficult to center their stories because environmentalism is, you know, find struggles to accept kind of indigenous disposition and that history. But the interesting thing is that there are alternative platforms coming up like SEED, the youth indigenous group in Australia, their narrative and their politics is nothing of what the environment movement speaks of. And I find in India, there are young indigenous researchers who are going to their communities back in the villages in the forested central parts of India and talking about rights and making them aware of rights and connecting that with climate justice. So entirely new platforms and conversations are coming of coming about because of the idea of climate justice. And I find that's democratizing as compared to how we used to understand environmentalism. And I find that an enormously hopeful space to work in. Definitely, thank you, Ruchira. And just before I go to the next question, I just want to promote that Ruchira is going to be uh, uh, moderating a really amazing panel tomorrow night, which is uh, really looking at post-colonial India and internal colonialism. And I think if you're all interested in learning more about that, especially, you know, with many of us in Australia, you know, with the Stop of the Downing campaigns and whatever, please do come along tomorrow night to listen to uh, the amazing knowledge and insights that uh, Ruchira and the herb, uh, and the panelists uh, tomorrow will, uh, I'm sure, will offer. Uh, so just, uh, I, I have one more question to ask all of you before we go to um, the um, to the audience Q and A. So the question that I pose to all three of you, and maybe Jesse, if you uh, don't mind uh, kicking it off, um, going forward, what actions can we collectively take to address the lack of representation in the climate movement, and how can white people and people of colour here in Australia work uh, actively work towards decolonising the environmental movement. 
It's a really great question. I'm so happy to kick it off too. So I think it's really important that you engage with organisations like Seed Mob, um, War, so Aboriginal Warriors of the Aboriginal Resistance, um, and many other amazing um, political but also environmental justice movements headed by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander and First Nations people, um, even not just here in so-called Australia but around the world. Because um, it's a global issue, it's a global fight, and we need to show solidarity. I think it's really important that um, settlers, but particularly white people in the environmentalist movement, be um, self-conscious, like not self-conscious, but self-aware that they may be taking up space. Um, and this is a space that Indigenous people should have a place in. Um, also be wary of how you... Um, perhaps communicate things, but also um, do the do your research and do the effort to actually go out to community, learn whose country that you're on, um, talk to elders, ask, talk to Indigenous people on equal terms, ask us what we want, but at the same time, do so in a way that's not exhaustive and don't expect us to have to be your encyclopedia of all things Indigenous and environmental because it's quite tiring. Like it, it can be, because we already have to, we're already facing mental um, strife and physical ill health from climate change. Um, it, we don't always have the capacity and nor should we be expected to always educate colonizers, uh, particularly white people um, on um, environmental things, um, on, um, yeah, on indigenous culture and, and whatnot. So I think it's like it's it it's very nuanced and you have to go in there um, being aware of where like the space you're in and the positionality that you're in as well. Um, so I think that it's it's yeah, it's a multifaceted um, I guess I'm not too sure what the right word is, but it's a multifaceted kind of a thing and approach that you need to have and you need to really be self-conscious and aware. Thank you very much. And Ruchira, would you like to add to that as well? Yes, look, I think I feel very hopeful. First of all, I see alternative platforms now. I mean, in the climate space and the climate justice space, of course, you know, seed. There's also the Pacific warriors who are, you know, kind of basically the diaspora and you know, young people from all the Pacific Islands have come together. Those are different worlds. They are different stories and they're different political pathways for climate justice from what a you know, predominantly white movement is articulating. Those kinds of platforms are so critically important for multicultural Australia. And I feel that migrants like me who are deeply committed to this space have a lot of work to do to forge solidarities and stand next to First Nations people, which is not predicated through white society because we do share a colonial past the experience of have been colonized, but now it's different. I think there is that forging that needs to occur and people like me will perhaps have to do a fair amount of work to get to that point. Those kinds of solidarities can, can tell stories which are not gonna come out now because you know, it's, it's mediated through white society and it's just a different cultural historical experience. So those stories need to come out and I do look for, I feel enormously hopeful about that. Thank you very much, Rochira and uh, Lungo. Would you like to add as well to that? Yeah, um, I think the, 
what I'm about to say might be hard to hear for some people, but I think it's really important that everyone decenters themselves when they're trying to get into environmental activism specifically, because it's really easy when you're being actively political and being an activist in spaces that are committed to decolonizing, because that means that you're probably going to have to be forced with a lot of to confront a lot of uncomfortable truths that might make you feel guilt or shame or a lot of negative emotions. And I think it's really important that the first step you take is just realizing that it isn't about you. And, you know, I've personally had to deal with this, but at the end of the day, it's important that you realize that it isn't about you, it's about the work, you know, like, you know, if you're a white person, if you're a cishet white man, you might feel a lot of guilt, you know, benefiting from all of these types of privileges and axes of oppression that don't affect you at all. But feeling guilty and ashamed about that doesn't do anything, you know, committing to decolonizing and putting work into achieving climate justice and indigenous justice, that's what's important. So the first step, in my opinion, is coming to terms with the fact that, you know, you as a person are one, a political body, and are two, probably complicit in some sort of violence. And the second step is realizing that, you know, that isn't the central narrative of your story. You know, the central narrative should be you committing to decolonizing and committing to doing the work to make sure that, you know, at the end of the day, we're all fighting together instead of all fighting um, each other. So yeah, I think it's really important that, you know, the takeaway that you have from this is, you know, it doesn't matter how bad you feel about something because emotions can only get you so far. You know, what matters is your commitment to doing the work, your commitment to making sure you're achieving actual change. And I think a lot of that comes from firstly committing to doing research, committing to learning. You know, in the past six months alone, I've learned so much. I've shifted so many of the ways I've thought about things. And, you know, a lot of that has had to do with the you know, pandemic we're still kind of living through, but, you know, it's also the fact that, you know, as a country, we've just, you know, haven't even made it a full year since the bushfires. You know, that is a very, you know, intense event that radicalized me personally and encouraged me to do a lot of research and educating, you know, finding out that, you know, I shouldn't be getting angry about stuff, I should be, you know, getting motivated to make change, to get involved with grassroots politics and like all of this stuff. And I feel like it's really important that things like this panel exist, you know, reading scientific papers aren't accessible to everyone, but tuning into an hour and a half long panel of people talking in ways that you can understand is really important. So yeah, that's what I'll leave you all with. Thank you. And I think that you actually um, uh, come up with some really, all three of you have come up with some really important things. And I think 
one of the things is that we have to stop shying away from the facts and actually not get defensive about things like this and really start to process some of what's actually happened even though we might we're not or we as you said we have not, we're not uh, necessarily ones that perpetrated the violence but by being complicit, we continue to perpetrate the violence. So I think this is something we need to also recognize it. So I'm gonna now open up to, there's so many questions, I can't believe it. I'm just looking at the questions and um, they're coming in thick and fast. So I'm gonna uh, um, put the question, uh, the first question to both yourself, Jesse and uh, Lungol. And they the questions come from, um, it's a combination we've uh, been able to put them together Kelly, Andy, and Ashley, thank you for your questions. Um, so the question is, how do we go about learning and implementing the very practical ways for us to live our lives in more sustainable ways aligned with Aboriginal wisdom and knowledge? Um, or in, to put it another way, how do we decolonize our minds? So maybe, Jesse, do you want to kick it off? And I'll put the question in the chat box as well, okay? That's a really great question. So kind of um, going back to what I said with the previous question, it's really important and vital that um, you engage with your the local Indigenous community, um, that you go to centres, um, You there's plenty of um, websites and pages that you can join headed by amazing Indigenous mob who talk a bit, like who talk about sustainable ways of being. Um, um, I also just wanted to point out that the word Aborigine is actually a slur. Um, I'm not sure if you're aware, but like, yeah, so Indigenous, we prefer Aboriginal. So Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, we don't like the word Aborigine. Um, it's a really hurtful and offensive term. Um, it's just because it has its roots in uh, really racist colonial simulationist policies. Um, so I just thought I'd put out there because I'm not sure if Kelly was aware, but um, just something to be mindful of. Um, yeah, um, I'll pass on to Lungo now. <laughs> yeah, um, I think it's much like Jesse said, really important that you do engage with, um, especially if you're living on stolen land, just engaging with the custodians of the land you're living on. Um, because the reality is they're more likely to know how to you know treat that land with respect than really anyone else. So that's really important. And I think it's it's I'm not sure how to articulate, but I think it's worth trying to engage with this in a way that isn't colonial. So in a way that isn't trying to be like, oh, give me all your practices so I can do them myself. You know, I think that's a really hurtful way of engaging with stuff like that because, you know, personally, I don't come from an individualist culture. Individualism is very much a capitalist tenet that we've all been forced to partake in. So I think, you know, an, a useful step would be trying to take the pressure off of yourself to do everything alone. You know, there have you know, been so many communities that have been here for so many years that know how to band together and work in solidarity to make sure you're treating 
the land and the water and like the natural environment you're in with respect and with dignity. So I think it's really important that one, you engage with local mob, but two, you engage with your community as well. You know, you don't have to feel all this pressure to make sure that you're, you, you know, you're turning your lights off and, you know, doing all this thing within your household, but you can do so much more when you engage with, you know, your community and engage with grassroots action. So yeah, that's my answer to that question. Definitely. And just, um, just to add to that, there was, a, 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 I think Kelly was kind of asking as well is, you know, um, Kelly is really thinking of like day-to-day -day actions. Um, is the difficulties like when we live in in a, in like major cities of being able to con uh, connect with uh, um, First Nations uh, peoples and mobs um, and, and mob and um, and also to um, you know to be able to connect in a meaningful way. Um, is there anything that you could potentially both Desi yourself and Lungol give us some ideas of how we can do that in in a way that is not uh, that's meaningful and not um, uh, you know it's not seen as being um, tokenistic? Um, I think it's really important to come in being respectful, but also kind of acknowledging the history and how, because um, my, my, myself, my family, we're part of the stolen generation. So we were displaced off country and had culture taken from us. So I'm in the process of still learning more about my culture. Um, and it can come across as just really kind of, depending on how people go about learning my culture and even incorporating their everyday life, it's important that we avoid appropriating. Like there's a difference between appreciating and appropriating. Um, by appreciating, you're acknowledging the history of that culture of those people. And you're doing so in a way that they find, we find respectful and doesn't take away from the meaning and the sacredness of practices or attire. Um, so I think it's, yeah, it's really important that you look at the way that you use that knowledge and how you gain it. Um, it's really vital that when you're when you're gaining that knowledge that you treat it with the sacredness that it deserves because it is sacred. Um, that you give it the love that it has and you um, and know that it's given in trust and it's given. It's like a, it's a very big gesture. It isn't this blage um, kind of not simple but like just meaningless hollow gesture like when we're imparting knowledge onto you we're giving you trust um, and we're giving you responsibility and we hope that you you use that responsibility and you care for country thank you and uh Lungo, do you want to add to that yeah um, i think another important way of engaging with mob and you know the custodians of the land you live on is actually putting yourself into you know actions where you can be in solidarity with them you know like like i said earlier environmental protection doesn't exist in a vacuum it intersects with so many 
other really awful things such as, like we've said, racism and anti-Indigenous rhetoric and classism especially. So, you know, a really good way of showing solidarity is getting involved with local, you know, activist movements that are being led by First Nations people. You know, I personally, you know, I live in Warang on Bidjigal land. And, you know, for me, that, look, that can look like showing up in solidarity with families that have lost people to, you know, murders behind bars, murders in custody. You know, it, you might not think that has a direct link to and environmentalism, but it really does, you know, everything's connected. And I think it's really important to link back to what I said earlier about removing yourself from the equation and, you know, not thinking about, oh, how can I be more sustainable? How can I adopt Aboriginal practices to be more sustainable? It's how can I help my community fight for Aboriginal justice, fight for environmental justice? So it doesn't have to be, you know, cherry picking, you know, practices and um, techniques that mob use. It can manifest in, you know, countless other ways. So I just recommend being really creative about the way that you show solidarity. Thank you so much. I, I completely agree with you, um, you know, we need to, we really need to actively be stepping aside and that's something which is very hard for many of us to do. And that process of active, um, uh, you know, stepping aside and actually platforming First Nations voices is absolutely important because it's very hard. We, we often don't hear First Nations voices, um, you know, both here and around the world. And I think this is um, that whole thing where um, the parts of the world that are most affected by climate change and uh, environmental destruction is the global south, and yet um, people from peoples from the global south are very uh, far, few and far between when it comes to being platformed. So that kind of leads into my next question, which is going to be directed at Wachira, um, and the question is uh, coming from Martin Wong, and Martin wants to know how can we bring more uh, migrant people of color into the environmental movement in Australia, which again is about the fact that, you know, it's an incredibly wide space. Um, so two things. One is we have to build other platforms, uh, platforms that can attract migrant people. And we also have to do some homework. Um, so that's, this has been a question on my mind for a long time, and I myself have, haven't done anything, but I know this much from experience and instinctively that my story of political environmental justice will not be the same as what I have articulated working with, you know, the Australian Conservation Foundation for six years and before that Greenpeace. So we need to build other platforms, and which is why I adore and I marvel the work and the criticality of platforms like SEED and the Pacific Climate Warriors, specifically in the realm of climate justice and environmental work. Um, and migrant communities have a lot to learn in terms of mobilizing on justice issues with an environmental message. Because as you said, Longolan, it's kind of, it is, I mean, it's always been there, but now we have to talk more and more about these things. The fact that 
any environmental issue is so intertwined in the fabric of the structure of injustice for a lot of communities. And even someone like me who comes from another country, I bring another world. And these worlds and these stories and these articulations of justice are going to be different from how the environmental movement is framed over here. And I think over 12 years of having been, been part of this, I now clearly think that other platforms need to be built. So there's some mobilization work that needs to be done. But I also think we do live in a society where democracy is relatively stable compared to India now and the circumstances in India now. So I have enormous hope of being able to do that kind of mobilization and other people of color, migrants, ought to come out and do this as well and build solidarity with indigenous First Nation people, which will be, the dynamic is going to be different from how it is um, between the environment movement and indigenous communities. So yeah, I don't know if that really answers the question, but I think we have to mobilize. Definitely, and I think, um, uh, you know, myself as a migrant and, uh, you, it, you know, when you're a first-generation migrant to this country, uh, most first-generation migrants are just struggling to um, get their feet on the ground and uh, kind of get to understand the system with, uh, in which they're operating. And I think, as we've already said, like, you know, and I think we've all highlighted before, that we live in an individualistic society with individualistic values. So therefore migrants also coming from collective societies, coming to this individualist system and have to grapple with that as well. And so therefore, you know, um, becoming part of a movement is actually, like, it, it really is a privilege for people like myself and yourself to be able to do this because it's um, not, and I think again, from an environmental movement perspective, and I might just, or it kind of addresses a little bit about, uh, like Peter had a question as well, is that we really, one of the ways in which we have to con uh, connect to people of color is actually from a class perspective. So, you know, really addressing the, uh, the, the material conditions of people, the immediate material conditions of people, because how can you have a conversation about the environment when people are unable to put food on their table, are unable to, they're thinking about, you know, the schooling for their kids, you know, they might be going, their kids might be going to a public school and they're, you know, we are seeing the, um, you know, the constant cuts to public school funding, things like that. So what we're finding, the fact that they might be in insecure work and they are like, you know, having to juggle two or three jobs just to survive. So I think again, uh, you know, sometimes the environmental movement can be incredibly elitist in its approach, and this perspective that you know, um, you know, that everything about this urgency that we need to deal with the uh, climate crisis, but actually, how can someone think about that far ahead when they can't even think about tomorrow, isn't it? And I think this is something. Ruchira, is that your time? Yeah, I mean, the environment, look, the environment movement has been a single issue uh, movement. I mean, in that sense, most movements around the world, or can I say from populist parts of the world, I come from a populist part of the world, movements are about kind of daily role with the struggle. And you just kind of, you know, that is what people's movements are about versus the environmentalism of the Northern single issue uh, a mobilization on single issues, but of course the environmental crisis now is bigger than what it, you know, kind of what it was 50 or 60 years ago. So yes, I mean, migrants and people who come to the society could build other platforms and other kinds of narratives would be centered. Again, kind of economic class and struggles would be centered, refugee issues would be centered, 
and stories of parts of the world that are sinking but have no platform. Like where I come from, Bengal, the, the southern rim of it is the lowest lying, some of the lowest lying lands. They're more threatened than the Pacific Islands, but again, people over there don't have the platform. So the thing is for someone like me is to do the work to be able to take the platform to them. And it's going to unleash mass migrations on a scale that India saw at the time of the brutal communal violence, at the time of partition, at the time of the freedom, you know, at the time of freedom. So these are kind of, you know, these are kind of histories that I could repeat on a different dimension because of climate change, but people don't have a platform to talk about it. So that's also something I see living here is fusing issues here and fusing issues there and building other stories than what I've been told. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Now this question here is from Andrew Morrison and it's directed at all three panelists. Um, Andrew says in the West in Western cultures, science and technology has become a new religion. So this might culture now lacks spirituality religion. What do panelists think about this idea? How does it affect? Uh, how does it affect the environment, and how does it affect the in, engagement between colonizers and First Nations peoples? So maybe um, I'll start with Jesse again. Is that okay, Jesse? Yes, yeah, something I have um, something I have to give a bit of a think about. But um, no, it's a very interesting question. Um, I guess in a way you could say the science of the guest has become a new religion, um, but also you get, I guess, kind of, well, not guess, but spirituality in the indigenous sense is different to what Western, um, Western societies labeled it to be. So whilst, yes, it is spiritual, um, I think the language is quite different and the meaning is quite different. Um, yeah, it's, it's a question that kind of is a bit of a curveball. I have, I have to have a bit of a think about it myself, but it is, it is no, actually, it's a quite irrelevant um, question. Because um, I did, yeah, I guess, you, yeah, Western science does like lack that spirituality, that component. It heavily argues that that's irrelevant, that it's not scientific, it's not something that can be tested, it's not something that's useful, but my work is in direct. Um, opposition to that and my work actually shows that that's not the case that you can have this spirituality you can have this cult you can have culture in science and it rich in it enriches it rather than takes from it and it doesn't um, invalidate it or make it any less scientific um, because cultural scientific knowledge indigenous, indigenous scientific knowledge is built upon careful observation just as western science is it's um it's changed according to the needs of the society um, and the, the kind of the behavioural shifts that the society needed to take at the time to mitigate uh, problems, but also keep the like, continuation of that culture and, and that collective. Um, so that's kind of like my, my thoughts on it. Um, but yeah, sorry if that's not exactly the answer you're looking for, but... <laughs> But also, we also discount, uh, Jesse, um, you know, uh, uh, Indigenous astronomy, you know, and um, things like that. So if we're talking about sciences and uh, things like that, I mean, that's a form of science. And, um, you know, so there's a lot of uh, intelligences that Indigenous people have. 
that we don't actually equate to our idea of science as well, isn't it? And Lungal, I'm so sorry, I didn't see your message before. Uh, are you able to respond to both the questions? At the... Okay, yeah, sure. I'm so sorry um, about that. So I just wanted to touch on the, um, the question that was asked earlier about trying to bring more people of color into environmental justice in Australia. Um, I personally, like from my experience, you know, like not all Pacific Islanders are black. So that's kind of why I have a lot of experience with people of color communities here. I think a lot of the issues we have trying to engage with our community here politically is that a lot of families are still kind of, um, I guess in a way traumatized from the way civil unrest was treated in our home countries. So that's like, that's something I'm very cognizant of as an activist here is that I'm able to engage in activism here in Australia in a way that I'm not able to back home. And that's because, you know, as violent as this government is, there's still a lot more safety in the activism I do here than I, you know, would want to do back home. So I think that's one thing to also take into account um, that I've had a lot of issues with. So for example, um, Ruchira brought up the Pacific Climate Warriors who I have, you know, tried to engage with, but a lot of issues they've had has been you know, they want to advocate for environmental justice, but there's a line they've drawn in that they won't go over when it comes to actually engaging in meaningful political action. You know, they'll call for, you know, a stop to Adani, but that they won't go much further, which is, I think, reminiscent of the fact that, you know, we just come from communities where protesting often ends in a lot of violence that, you know, we're too scared to deal with, which I think is a very valid concern. Um, so moving on to this question about spirituality and science, I think, I think it's a kind, I think it's a colonial mindset to view a lot of indigenous practices as something overtly spiritual. So that's why I'm a bit, you know, like I'm not sure how to feel about this question specifically, but what I will say is I don't think that, you know, Western capitalist value being put on science and technology is an accurate way of describing what's happened. I feel like the value isn't put on science and technology, it's actually put on economic growth, you know? And because of that, that's why we have all of these, you know, newer, faster, you know, more efficient ways of extracting coal and burning fossil fuels, you know? When there's just as much science and technology being put into innovating renewable energy, you know, like this. So I feel like at the end of the day, it's a very economically motivated thing as opposed to something that's motivated by science and technology. 
I mean, Jesse and I are both ecologists. So we work in STEM, we work in science, but our field is severely underfunded when you think about the ways, you know, other forms of science like petroleum engineering get so much more resources. So I don't think it's an issue of science and technology. I think it's an issue of economic capitalist development. I think you're very right about how we cherry pick things as well in the in our Western society to to uh, you know put put forward as you know these great innovations you know from the West when really in reality the West was quite far behind many other cultures around the world you know and um, it, it's just through uh, through brutal colonialism they were able to actually um, advance. Muchira, um, would you like to add to that? And then we've got one more question after that. Well, you know, there was, um, I mean, uh, you know, the, the environmental movement, um, the Australian environment movement resonates with the American environmental movement, and they were reaching to the East for kind of spiritual succor uh, at a time when, you know, kind of industrialization and land clearing was kind of driving environmental destruction during the wilderness war, so to speak. And it was this kind of oddly balanced kind of, you know, picked elements from Eastern societies such as mine, which kind of then became, you know, kind of a crucible from which they kind of, you know, conceived of needing to have a values change. So what is interesting, I mean, I also see the cherry picking in the sense that Gandhi's, uh, Mahatma Gandhi's environmentalism was taken and his kind of direct, you know, kind of nonviolent acceptance of the true protest was taken, but his deeper kind of critique of Colon, you know, kind of colonization, capitalist colonization, and his freedom struggle in India wasn't something that kind of resonates front and center with the environment movement, who kind of time and again harks back to him and talks about him. So there are there is kind of elements of cherry picking, but I also think that uh, like the professional NGOs and the kinds of environmental kind of activism and work we have seen in Australia and the US, you know, kind of these kinds of models. They're science driven, yes, but kind of people's movements, indigenous movements, um, movements from my part of the world, they're sent, they would be centered on culture and culture just brings so much out. I mean, of course it brings out indigenous sites, it brings out stories, it brings out community, it brings out life. So that's just an entirely different model. It brings, it brings a lived world in. And that is something that Northern environmentalism does from, you know, doesn't have. So I just think that I, I see that's critical to life. I see that as critical to you know, kind of the future. So yeah, I mean, if we, if we have culture, we have all these elements that kind of a science-driven model doesn't have. Thank you very much. I'm going to end today with a quite a, um, um, I would call, um, in my view, it's there's a bit of a flashpoint, and so the, you know, Western-style veganism um, is, uh, you know, is often touted as a solution to um, environmental degradation, uh, and 
you know, that often means that uh, many First Nations people and uh, people of color are shamed about our, our, the, our practices and the, the foods we eat and things like that. What are your thoughts on a veganism in relation to decolonizing environmentalism? Who wants to, uh, uh, this time around, if anyone wants to jump in first, I'm happy for you to jump in first. I'm happy to jump in first. Sure, uh, so um, I've, I've actually done a panel on this before because this is quite a huge issue when we talk about environmentalism, specifically as a white movement. And I think veganism to a lot of people is an easy fix that abates a lot of their guilt and fear um, to what is in actuality a very complicated issue. So a lot of people find it easy to tell themselves, you know, I'm vegan, I bike to work, everything's good, I'm doing my best for the environment. And, you know, that just isn't the case. And my biggest issue with this question is that it actually puts the onus on us as individuals to address climate change alone and it actually takes accountability away from the people and the bodies that are actually responsible for environmental devastation. So the reality is, you know, corporations are responsible for 70% of all emissions. You know, if the entire world goes vegan, and let's pretend it's the easy fix that vegans think it is, there's still 70% of emissions we still need to address. So that's one issue. Another issue is the fact that requiring all people to go vegan is an inherently racist and ableist rhetoric. Um, because the reality is, you know, a lot of indigenous people just don't have access to veganism as a form of eating, you know, and as a lifestyle. And the reality is, I know that if I went, if I was vegan here in Sydney, my carbon footprint would be exponentially larger to my family back home that do actually have a meat-heavy diet. Um, because the reality is the embodied emission. So an embodied emission is all the emissions involved in getting a product to you. So it's not just the emissions of what it took to harvest a potato. It's the emissions of what it took to get the water to the potato, what it took to get the potato to the transport plant and transporting the potato to the supermarket. That's what an embodied emission is. So the embodied emissions involved in me consuming a vegan diet here is significantly higher than my family back home that have a more direct like meat to table kind of process that they have going on. And the reality is if you look at indigenous people that live further away from the equator, like Inuit populations in Northern America, you can't grow vegetation as easily in the land that they live on. So it's really irresponsible to consider veganism as a solution. And I think that veganism is very much a valid way of doing, you know, of abating your guilt if that's what works for you. But I don't think it brings out the systemic change required to achieve environmental justice. And I think it's really important to understand that, you know, 
a vegan diet is very much an individual thing one person can do, but collective solidarity, grassroots action is something we can all do together that will bring about tangible change. You know, like if you do, you know, if you decide to commit to being vegan, that's only one person's, you know, carbon footprint you're changing. But if you band together and, you know, like fight for a corporation to get at least a little bit better in having sustainable practices, that's so much more of a difference that you're making. So yeah, that's what I'd say to that question. Thank you so much, Lundo. And um, who wants to go uh, next, Jesse or Ruchira? Yeah, I'm not too sure how much more I can add because Lungo did just an amazing job yeah, at specifically, specifically putting that all out there um, and all the just the grievances I myself have with the veganism movement, particularly the white militant veganism movement. Because um, my, I myself have thalassemia, beta, so I have to eat meat. Um, it's not optional. If I don't, I'll get very, very sick and hospitalized and vitamins actually don't really do massive amounts of help for me. So it's, it's very much an ableist, elitist, very classist as well. Again, not everyone has the access to the resources um, to eat a vegan diet, but eat a vegan diet in a way that does not cause grievous bodily like harm um and yeah it's also it, it does it's very much has that racist element of it because it denies to just people the rights to practice our culture which does involve consuming the meat of animals that again we view as very sacred um we don't commodify nature um so it's uh i find it very very find it very um quite disrespectful when um when I've come across white, like white vegans who've told me that it's um, I'm harming an animal by eating traditional meat, by eating you know kangaroo and um, red tail, like things that my animals that my ancestors conceived for thousands of years, and we did so and we do so in a humane in a humane way. Um, so it's and really we need to look at like Lungal said, we can't take the onus and responsibility off of these massive corporations, these mining and these mining and um, these coal companies that are the really, when you look at emissions <laughs> alongside agriculture are the largest, um, for lack of a better word, are largest people, like the largest, um, I forgot, don't know what exactly what word I would use, but like they're largely responsible for uh, massive amounts of emissions that we're facing. Um, so it's, we, I very much, I'm wary of putting it on the individual and saying that veganism is the the solution to fighting climate change and that it, it will it'll make a marked improvement and it will reduce emissions because that's just not true we need to look at um, investing in renewables but also look at the way that we have relationship to land um, but also uh, dedicate time and money and energy into making agriculture more sustainable because even the crop industry it's not just the meat industry um it's also the um like crop agriculture is immensely destructive it so much land so much hectares have to be cleared um and so much water and um, uh, um 
and a lot of the topsoil is just completely stripped and wrecked. Um, so you have, all, and you have runoff. So you have all these issues with not just um, animal agriculture, but also crop agriculture. So we need to really be focusing more efforts on how do we, um, how do we tackle those, make them more sustainable, but also how do we redistribute wealth? And um, how do we hold these corporations to question and how do we, and, and going about kind of um, fighting and agitating for getting renewable energy out there and investing in it and getting rid of coal and stop, yeah, stop using these really unsustainable and um, damaging bioproducts. Definitely. And I think like uh, both of you hit on the two, uh, I think a, a number of points. By focusing on the individual, we actually let corporations off the hook. And I mean, if you look at in Australia, uh, the, the, like again, this capitalist uh, model of, uh, of agriculture, of agribusiness, um, which is, you know, and I think um, Jesse just highlighted about the monoculture, you know, the fact that we're growing cotton and rice, and I think Lundahl said, you know, the amount of water that's just taken out to grow plants, produce that we should not be growing in a, in a country that is essentially a desert, you know, and so what, all of these uh, things happen because we're so focused on the individual and not these corporations that are um, doing what they are doing. And Ruchira, would you like to add to that as well? Look, I think Lungal and um, Jesse have covered fantastic ground. Uh, I just want to give one example from the messy global south and Indian context. So I think we might know that, you know, there is a Hindu majoritarian government in India and in many states as well. And um, India has the second biggest Muslim population in the world. And there are kind of human rights issues at this point of time, they're conflicts. But one of the things that has been occurring, one of the things that occurred since 2015 is that they started kind of closing abattoirs and they started closing these beef kind of producing places. And a beef, like a lot of Muslim people in India are working class and are poor and beef is their cheapest form of protein. They don't have access to vegetables. Beef is the cheapest form of protein. So it's almost a form of economic justice. Um, and they started closing abattoirs and they, and they kind of old, almost 200 year old kind of kebab places uh, started closing. So I was having a conversation here with some um, activists who singularly look at the fact that in, you know, India is trying to close down beef consumption and say that that's a good thing for the environment and how cruel that is in the context of human rights in India. So those are the kinds of things that crush my heart. You know, the understanding of the, basically it is about understanding the context in which, you know, kind of veganism, vegetarianism can be a form of cruelty and oppression and understanding then finally then, you know, that's probably not a solution. There's no one size fits all solution for that. So those are the conversations I'd rather have and kind of get people to understand the numerous dynamics, you know, when it comes to kind of a personal choice of diet and yeah, what that might mean for a poorer person, a person doesn't have access to what I have access to, so on and so forth. Thank you so much. Uh, you, you know, you've all three of you imparted 
a wealth of knowledge. I can't tell you. I don't know if you've been following the chat. The chat's just gone crazy. People have just uh, the, the audience has just been loving it, and I think I can I can attest to that by just reading some of the comments coming through the chat. Um, would you like to share a final word with the audience? Um, uh, and who would any of you would like to kick off? I'm happy for you to maybe share a few final words before we close off. Maybe um, I'll get into it. Yeah. Um, I think if this is kind of your first foray into trying to understand the intersections of decolonization and environmental justice, there's so much more out there for all of us to learn. I mean, I can only speak for myself as a panelist, but I'm very much in the early stages of educating myself on how to be better when it comes to achieving liberation for everyone that's being oppressed by, you know, this capitalist neoliberal system we live in and trying to achieve environmental justice. So I really encourage everyone to um, particularly try to educate themselves in ways that work for you. Um, personally, I'm not very good at reading textbooks and academic papers. So that just basically manifests in me looking for podcasts to listen to or audiobooks because I'm a very auditory learner or because I use social media a lot. I follow a lot of other activists that I can learn a lot from. So I think, you know, it's a hard road ahead when you're trying to learn more about this and you're trying to fight, you know, this fight, but it isn't lonely and it's very rewarding. So yeah, that's my final thought. Thank you for your insights, Lundol. And I must say, I think uh, you are uh, talking yourself down a lot because you imparted some amazing knowledge today. Thank you so much. And <laughs> Jesse, would you like to share um, uh, some final words as well? Um, I think, yeah, Fungal did an amazing job as usual. Um, I don't think I can top that. Um, it's, what I think is very much on the same vein is it's, it can be hard, it can be a hard journey, but it's important that we take ourselves out of our comfort zones and we confront and that we continue to learn and engage and engage in a way that is accessible for us. Like Lungol said, um, he's a very auditory learner. Um, I myself, um, very much the same auditory, but also diagrams and pictures. So there, there are sources out there that you can learn, um, but they don't limit your ability to be involved, to be active, to be informed and to keep learning. Um, also want to touch on a few questions about how we decolonize. And that's a really interesting question because it's going to be an ongoing thing. Um, I know I, myself, it's going to be continual lifelong um, dedicate, for lack of a better word, dedication, but it's going to be something that I practice and I, I work towards my entire life. And I suppose it's, it, it's, it differs between what lived experience that you have and, and your relationship in, I guess, in the, the power structures that we have in our society. Um, so it's a, I think it's really important that we reflect upon that and we, um, we also recognize the privileges that we have and where we are in society and listen and also just listen to people who are marginalized 
really just amplify their voices, center their voices whenever we can, listen to what they have to say and not be complicit and allow others to be oppressed. And it's really easy to fall into that habit, to fall into that place of being too scared to speak up for yourself. But it's life-saving, it's vital, it's how we drive change. It can't be, it shouldn't be, the owner should not be upon pressed people to, to do all, like to put themselves in harm's way all the time to elevate themselves and to get um, equal rights um, for themselves. It's, we really need allies. Um, we really need our allies to pick up the ball um, and to stand alongside us. I want, I'd like to say that like your perspective, perspectives, uh, Jesse, have been so unique and I love your fierceness. Like it's, uh, it just, you, you just, it shines out of you. And I think it's so like, you know, this amazing uh, warrior spirit that you have. I thought it, it's just, uh, you know, I think about, you're a, a young person and I think, my gosh, when I was your age, I didn't have the perspective that you have. And so thank you so much as well for being on the panel, really appreciate it. And Ruchira, would you like to share uh, some final words as well? Yes, um, sorry. Look, I've, you know, the 12 years of being in Australia has, you know, been an enormous learning experience. Today was a great learning experience. And I'm, you know, I really learned a lot from Lungol and Jesse, your perspectives, just in-depth, calm, very reflective. Um, I, I think that it is, I, I, I mean, as someone who feels a political impulse, I think it's about time there was, you know, kind of a, in various many different ways, migrant societies, you know, my own community of the Indian diaspora being able to kind of, you know, come and stand next to First Nations people on terms that are entirely different on a range of different issues. And I feel interested to explore that space. I feel interested to explore what articulations of climate justice uh, can be, which are not mediated by that conflict between kind of white and indigenous society and then the historic frame and which is you know, where people like myself can come and stand next to First Nations people. And I just kind of throw that to everyone who was kind enough to spend this kind of time with us that you know, I'd be really happy to explore some of that and you know, just to see what comes out, how people constitute justice, yeah. Thank you very much. And um, I just want to say we're like more than 20 minutes over time, but I think there was so much, there's such a, um, rich discussion and I didn't want to cut it off. I'm so sorry, everyone. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. For more information on the Beyond Mining podcast series, Blockade iMark, and much, much more, please visit blockadeimark.com. Thanks for listening.